The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And yes, I know Russian testimony leaders of the Intel community on Capitol Hill. And of course, the big thing that's going on, Infrastructure Week. We have reached Infrastructure Week hump day, like the metal plates in a suspension bridge that are built to expand in warm weather and contract and cold. Hump day is the vital part of the Infrastructure Week, where if it goes wrong, it'll all go south. We'll get to all that in the spiel. But what I want to talk about is terrorism. Now, the bad thing about terrorism, well, it's that it kills people. The second bad thing is that it terrorizes. We should try to prevent all acts of killing, including terrorism, but we should also try not to be terrorized. Now, there's one school of thought that says the only way to not be terrorized is for there to be no killings. But since there will never be no killings, it won't happen. So if we guarantee that we'll always be terrorized, I say that we could try to stop the killings while at the same time decide not to be terrorized by the relatively few killings that happen. This is obviously not the strategy of the administration. Here was Mike Pence at the Catholic prayer breakfast yesterday. Let me begin this morning by expressing the sorrow of our entire administration and all the American people for the horrific terror attacks this weekend in London and with word this morning of another terrorist attack in Melbourne, Australia. The Melbourne, Australia attack, President Trump tweeted about this too. Indeed, a Melbourne man was killed. Three police officers were injured during a hostage situation. The motivation was terrorism. But why are we scanning the world and picking up the one killing out of a thousand? Yeah, that's how many homicides there are every day in the world on average. That doesn't even count the actual wars. So one out of a thousand murders that took place 10,000 miles away. And we want to talk about it. And look, I am all into vigilance. I'm troubled. I'm very saddened like anyone with a heart by the attacks in London. And I hear about the experiences of the attackers and I scratch my head. There was one guy who was stopped in an airport in Italy, asked, what's your purpose? here, he said, to be a terrorist and told to go on his way. I'm not kidding. An Italian prosecutor, Giuseppe Amato, said that Yusef Zagba, when asked, what are you doing here, initially replied that he was leaving Italy to go to Turkey, quote, to become a terrorist. And then the article I was reading said the suspect quickly corrected himself. I would say he did not correct himself. I would say he gave himself away. He confirmed that he was not lying with his actions last week. So let's stop These terrorists, it seems not to take wizardly precognition to spot that fellow as a would-be terrorist. You know the one I'm talking about. The one who, when asked, said, I would like to be a terrorist. But at the same time, let's get a little perspective. That is my charge, and I bring it to the hearings on Capitol Hill, a preview of the Comey testimony in the spiel. But first, speaking of murders close to home... The criminologist John Pfaff is here. We talked to him a few years ago, stretched that interview into two parts. It demanded it. We will do the same thing today and tomorrow. I think John Pfaff is the best voice on one of the toughest issues of our day, which is crime and punishment and incarceration. Professor John Pfaff.
We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. There are some social problems, you might not know this, that actually aren't that hard to solve. Take seatbelts. Used to be 10% of people use seatbelts. Now it's about 90%. Why? What happened? Education, technology. Nah, we passed the law. We passed the law. The law made it a norm. Seatbelts have been used. Now, there are other problems that really are hard to solve, and they're harder than the reformers would have you believe. Prisons, for instance. Mass incarceration is one of the biggest problems facing America. That's true. I believe it. My guest, John Pfaff, believes it. He's written a book called Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve the Real Reform. Is Professor at Fordham. Hello. Welcome back, John. Thanks so much. So we lay out the predicate. Mass incarceration is one of the biggest problems. And from there, you deviate from what you call the standard story of why that is pretty substantially. I think we know what the standard story is, but tell me how you defined it and, how, and then what's your deviation. So the standard story, as I define it, focuses on three core causes behind mass incarceration. The war on drugs. We filled our prisons with all these low-level, nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, longer sentences. That sentence length has gotten longer and longer, and that's causing prisons to grow. And increasingly, a concern over private prisons and this idea that there are these groups profiting off prisons and they drive incarceration rates up. So pretty easily, I think one in three, there's like a statistic that could blow that out of the water. Private prisons are what percentage of all prisons? 8%. There you go. Drug incarcerations are what percentage of all state and federal incarcerations? State and federal combined, about 20%, 16% in the state system. And the state system is the majority of people in about prisons. Almost 90% are in the state prisons. Okay, so either the vast majority or the overwhelmingly vast majority do not fall into two out of three explanations that are given. Now, what about the longer sentences explanation? So Americans serve more time in prison for any given crime than Europeans do. We said we have longer sentences, but there's no evidence that the time actually spent in prison has grown. And in fact, the amount of time we spend is still fairly short. You know, I asked some students the other day, how long do you think a person convicted of violence spends in prison on average? 10, 15, 20 years, they said. It's four, mm-hmm. four years. Property and drug crimes, one year. What drives it is admissions. We keep admitting so many people every year. It maintains this huge and fairly transient prison population. So is that to say that they might serve, a person might serve one year for a crime, but then be back in six months and then back again in a year and a half? So maybe if we look at it from a different way, per person, not per crime, it's pretty long. Right. That's a concern. But when you sort of dig into the best numbers we have, and that's a big caveat in criminal justice. Our data is never all that great. But it looks like about two-thirds of all people who go to prison don't reappear within the next 13 to 14 years. Uh, so about one-third do come through, but those who do generally only come back once. Uh, so it's not really this revolving door we portray it as, which in some ways actually is kind of a worse story because it means so many more people are actually going to prison. Now, if it's just the same, like, 100 guys just cycling through, well, yeah. that's bad for them. But now it's literally millions of people. Well, let's talk about that. Um, so, you know, people don't show up for 13 years. There's really good evidence that criminality and age are highly correlated, yet it doesn't seem that the criminal justice system takes us into account at all. We've taken up half of it and ignored half. We've acknowledged that younger people have less control. You see that in the death penalty jurisprudence that young people can't be executed. Yeah. You see that with raise the age legislation and try to say, no, if you're 16, you're 
you're not rational at 16 and mm-hmm. we should treat you differently. What we don't pay attention to is that you all not do age into crime. We know that. But that you also age out of crime. That when you hit your 30s and 40s, you become less violent. You become calmer. And, and for various biological and chemical and even social reasons, you're married, you have a job. There are things that just push you away. And so the need to lock people up for even though four or five or six years in their 30s is probably excessive. So what would happen if we just released everyone on their 40th birthday, except maybe, you know, the serial killers? Probably not much. And the example we have with this is that California recently allowed third strikers whose final strike was nonviolent, but earlier strikes might have been, uh, to a petition for early release. Yeah. Uh, and they've released about 2,000 people under this program, and their recidivism rate is about one-tenth that of the state, 5% compared to 50%. And it's because they're older. It's exactly what we predicted because there's a stack of research all around the world showing this general idea of aging in and aging out. So it's not like California suddenly the shocking sense of, oh, my God, maybe there's this age profile. Everyone expected that we would see low reoffending rates and, and we're seeing them. So what are the other things? Like, let's say instead of uh, trying to crack the, the uh, Tampa Bay Rays lineup, one of these brilliant sabermetricians puts together a profile of the kind of person who could be released from prison. And we're going to give you a good prediction of if he'll offend again and it'll be accurate. Uh, what would that prediction do you think look like? How close are we to get that stat head from uh, giving a recidivist score for everyone in prison? We're doing that in a lot of states already. We do have these these quantitative parole release tools that are very much designed to focus on re- risk of reoffending. There are certainly concerns with them in terms of you know, racial biases that get baked into the code. But you know the question is always a comparative one. Is that model better or worse than the human making the call, not just is the model good or bad on its own terms? Yeah. And I think the evidence suggests those models are, are doing a fair amount of good. But do we want this? I mean, do we really want, as much as people like you or I, we think it's an egregious problem. If the majority of Americans don't, do we really want to uh, have real prison reform? I don't think that's quite the right question about who we should be talking about. It's not a majority of Americans. It's a majority of Americans who live in high crime areas. Mm -hmm. And crime is incredibly geographically concentrated. Within a given city, half of all crime usually takes place in about 10% of all city blocks. Those those parts tend to be poor, more disadvantaged, tend to be more minority, tend to be younger. And so to some extent, I don't care what the suburbanites feel about. I mean, politically, obviously, you have to care, right? But from a policy point of view, I don't really care about what the suburbanites who are safe from crime feel. But the problem with our policy is, is that what my research has shown is the single most important person is the prosecutor. They drive this. And prosecutors are elected by the county. And who is the most powerful voter in the county is the rich white suburbanite. Right. right? So you've created a system where those who are least impacted by crime have the most control over those who enforce that law. And it creates a, a separation of costs and benefits. I think it has very negative effects on how prosecutors act. Undergirding this whole argument is mass incarceration is, you know, Chris Hayes calls it a colony within a nation. Is there a way to get at how much race plays a role in putting someone in jail and keeping someone in jail? I think it does. I, I think it does because part of it was the disconnect I was just talking about, that if you're a suburbanite, you want the city to be safe, but you don't feel the cost of over-enforcement, right? It's not your uncle, it's not your brother, it's not your nephew who's needlessly going to prison or going to prison for too long, or even just being arrested because when it didn't have to be arrested, yeah. right? But you feel the safety, right? So that incentivizes the prosecutors to be tough because they don't actually feel the costs politically of being too tough. They do feel the cost of being too weak, right? And that is very much a racial story that we've, we've concentrated minority poverty in the cities, moved the wealth and the voting power to the suburbs. And, and I think it creates a, a, a powerful social disconnect that is tied very much to redlining and race. Do we have, though, any states like a state like Minnesota or New Hampshire, overwhelmingly white states. And is the lesson of that state tell us something about when you have a homogeneous population? Does incarceration look different? Does the length of sentences look different? Are they good experiments to tell us something about America? 
I, I think Minnesota's prisons has some of the strongest racial disparities of any state in the country, right? So I think if it's too homogenous, it goes the other way, right? That that they're gonna they're gonna be incredibly harsh towards what few minorities are in that yeah. that state. Those ten blocks or whatever I don't know how many blocks, but in Milwaukee, I have read account for some gigantic proportion of people in the prisons. Right. Yeah. Right. So I mean, maybe maybe they're 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 more lenient towards other white people in the more homogenous communities but i feel like even even in sort of the wider states they still be very punitive because there's enough minorities there that that it that still allows sort of this this social disconnect to, to persist let's say we get the problem right let's say we put the people in jail who deserve to be in jail who society wants in jail but then we let them out of jail and they don't offend, maybe to a great degree they don't offend. I'm not saying a perfect world, because in a perfect world, there wouldn't be murder. But let's say we really, in America, got our prison systems as right as can reasonably be expected. How many prisoners, how many fewer prisoners would there be? It's actually a great question, for which we have no answer at all. <laughs> and to me, that's part of the, the problem with sort of the entire mass incarceration discussion is that the basic idea, and, and I, I understand where it's coming from, is that there are too many people in prison. We don't know how many more it is, and we need fewer, but we don't quite know what that fewer number should be. And I think, you know, I think the strongest argument for, for, for showing that we have to have too many people in prison right now is that crime rates are about where they were in 1970, but our prison population is five times higher. So unless you think the average American is five times more likely to commit a crime now than 1970, that doesn't make any sense from a public safety perspective. And if anything, I think Americans are less likely to commit crimes today than they were back in the 70s. The millennials are just as big a, phys- a cohort in size as the boomers. Yet when the millennials aged into their peak primary age, crime went down. Yeah. When the boomers did, this country went off the rails. Well, I right? got a couple explanations for that. YouTube takes up a lot of your time, so you're not going to be out mugging anyone. The economy's better. Let's get to that. You know, old liberal trope. Every time you give someone a job, you, have, you can take away a jail cell. How true is that? You know, unemployment correlates to crime. People commit crimes because of no good job opportunities. Right. That's surely true. I think the challenge is, is that, again, where crime is happening are in areas of such dense, concentrated poverty that it's not easy just to get the jobs there. Mm-hmm. Right? And in fact, I think one really good argument for people to make is we talk all this time about second chances. Right? When you come out of prison, to give you that second chance. We should be focused on creating that first chance in the first place. Right? You don't have a first chance. It's not like people in prison had like you know the IBM job, but then they just sort of lost their way and started selling drugs and now yeah. want to get back on track. They had no option. That's why they're selling drugs in, in the first place, which is actually one reason why I think Ending the war on drugs will not have the impact people hope it will, right? So only about 16% of people in prison are there for drugs. And so the idea is that, well, at least we, those 16% would be out. That's about 250,000 people. That's, that's a lot of people, right? That's something. But why are they there? They're all there for trafficking, not possession. You might go to jail or arrest for possession, but you don't go to prison for possession. Why are they selling? Because they can't get a better job. They don't want to, right? They have to. So if you take away, if you legalize drugs... The drug market will consolidate in the you know, professional markets. Those drug selling jobs will go away. So now they're going to steal cars. They're going to steal credit cards. They're going to engage in identity theft. The Times had an article about New York City gangs recently that have shifted from drug selling to ID theft because the drug market's drying up. So they're going to shift to the next thing. Yeah. They, don't, they can't get that legitimate job. And also, isn't it true if we talk about, well, what about the, uh, you know, in the teens percent of people who are there for drugs? Aren't a lot of them there for drugs because... They could be there for the gun charge, but the drugs charge carries twice as long a sentence, so that's what they get them with? My guess is, is it's less that the drug charge carries a longer sentence, but it's more that the drug charge is easier to establish. Yeah. Right? You've got the roadside drug test, which might be completely unreliable, but it still convinces them to plead guilty. Because um, I think, and to me, what's really telling about that is if you look at 
drug incarceration in New York State. So 1973, New York State passes the toughest drug laws in the country. Rockefeller yeah, drug laws. Brutal. Yeah. Between 1970... Liberal, the liberal Republican, Nelson Rockefeller, by the way. Trying to prove he wasn't a liberal, right? Sure. In his effort to get yes. to the right of Barry Goldwater. Yeah, between 1973 and 1984, the number of people in New York State prison on drugs goes down, right? Tougher laws, fewer people. When did it start going up? 1984. Crack. Crack. Right? And then they start going down in 1997, right? No reform. The first reform for the rock laws is 2004. So it's almost a decade before the reform. So basically, the New York City DAs who are driving this process, they see in 73, they don't care. In 84, violence is tearing through the city even worse than before. They use the drug laws to get the violence. And when the violence starts subsiding in the mid-1990s, they stop using drugs and drug cases start going down. It's and now, very much tied to violence. And now in New York State, we're letting out more prisoners than we're taking in. For now, right? So what's happened in New York State is that we've, we've remarkably decarcerated for drugs. It's gone up for property and stable for violence. Mm-hmm. If we don't start talking about how to punish those convicted of violence less severely in New York, the decline is going to stop probably in like four or five years. It's going to level out at around 40,000, 45,000 people, which is down from 75,000, but well above like 9,000, which it was in the 70s. One, I think this is part of the standard story, but you tell me if it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's a notion that I disagree with. It's that the drop in crime really had nothing to do with the number of people in jail. And we talked about this in the past. It seems to be very correlated. I know you could go to Finland and say that the opposite thing happened, but so what? Right. So I I think what the best data shows is that in the 80s and early 90s, when prisons were relatively low and crime was rising, prison did help rein in that growth. Where we are today with very high prisons and very low crime, that sort of next incremental person you send to prison, that marginal prisoner, is probably clearly a net social loss. That's not as effective now as it was before. And even if you accept that, which, which I do, that doesn't mean prison was the right way to go. Right. It would have been more effective to spend all that money on policing rather than prisons, but we did we stand on prisons instead. And there's rational reasons why. One's funded by the state, one's funded by the cities. There's all these complicated, incredibly boring budgetary reasons why we've done things wrong. But you know, even if it worked, it was not the right way to do it. John Pfaff is the author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. He's a professor at Fordham Law School. And if you liked him today, he'll be here tomorrow, part two of our interview with John Pfaff. Tune in there. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Up on Capitol Hill today, the Senate Intel Committee had a chance to query the heads of the security agencies. And Senator John McCain started things off by noting... Well, gentlemen, you're here at an interesting time. It's funny how sometimes events run together. Well, sure, it's an interesting time. It's Infrastructure Week. Everyone knows it's Infrastructure Week. Here is Gary Cohen on Fox and Friends. So you know this is Infrastructure Week. Uh-huh. It's Infrastructure Week. 
Who doesn't know that? Well, apparently some fusty old senators aren't focused on infrastructure week. I guess they don't use the same bridge and tunnels the rest of us do. Or maybe they're worried about the infrastructure of, say, American securities and elections. Maybe. They all were asking the heads of the NSA and the FBI and national intelligence about reports, widespread reports. The President Trump asked them to go easy on old Mikey Flynn. And to a man, the intelligence heads said they had never been made to feel pressure. Ah, but this does not answer. Perhaps the pressure was intended. They're just so manly, they didn't feel it. These men were hired because they don't sweat under pressure. If indeed the heat was on, they are not saying in open session. They're certainly not commenting on the report in the Washington Post. Yes, I said the Washington Post. You know, it's the premier daily newspaper of the D.C. metro area. The Washington Post. Not sure about which paper Senator McCain or Dan Coats meant. I think it was... This morning's Washington Post. Wait, wait, was it the Bulldog or the morning edition of the Washington Post? Here it is on this morning's Washington Post. I read it for the jumble. Because it's classified information in this morning's Washington Post. The only thing that feels better than doing the crossword puzzle is reading about presidential pressure to drop investigations in a complete crossword puzzle. And that's all in this morning's Washington Post. I guess I've been around town long enough to uh, say um, not take everything at, at face value that's printed in the where was it published? Printed in the post. Uh, yeah, just because it's uh, published uh, uh, in, the, in the Washington Post doesn't mean it's all now un- unclassified. Well, do you, do you want to tell us any more about the Russian involvement in our election that we don't already know from reading the Washington Post? <laughs> Not since Bruno Magli's shoes received a pop during the OJ trial did a consumer product so benefit from an endorsement under oath. But the main attraction isn't the Washington Post. It's tomorrow when the FBI, former FBI Director James Comey, will testify. He released his opening statement today. I'll read you some selections. The president began by asking me whether I wanted to stay on as FBI director, which I found strange because he had already told me twice in earlier conversations that he hoped I would stay, and I had assured him that I intended to. He said that lots of people wanted my job, and given the abuse I had taken during the previous year, he would understand if I wanted to walk away. My instincts told me that the one-on-one setting and the pretense that this was our first discussion about my position meant the dinner was at least in part an effort to have me ask for my job and create some sort of patronage relationship. That concerned me greatly, given the FBI's traditionally independent status in the executive branch. A few moments later, the president said, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. I didn't move, speak, or change my facial expressions in any way during the awkward silence that followed. Now, if you're saying to yourself, wow, I wonder how Trump reacted. I wonder if Trump was unnerved. Just listen to those words. He's dining with someone who didn't move speak, or change his facial expressions. That is every dinner he's ever had with Melania. The man was made for those situations. Comey went on. You will always get honesty from me. He paused and then said, that's what I want, honest loyalty. I paused and then said, you will get that from me. As I wrote in the memo I created immediately after the dinner, it is possible we understood the phrase honest loyalty differently. But I decided it wouldn't be productive to push it further. 
the term honest loyalty had helped end a very awkward conversation and my explanations had made clear what he should expect. And there you have it. Jim Comey, President Trump, had somehow stumbled into the great institution which has pulled so many uncomfortable situations out of the fire, they developed a safe word. All right, Comey continues. The president returned to the topic of Mike Flynn, saying he's a good guy and has been through a lot. He repeated that Flynn hadn't done anything wrong with his calls with the Russians, but that he misled the vice president. He then said, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, letting Flynn go. He is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. I replied only that, quote, he is a good guy. Parentheses. In fact, I had a positive experience dealing with Mike Flynn when he was a colleague as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency at the beginning of my term at the FBI. I did not say... I would let this go. So we know this. Mike Flynn might be charged with a crime, might be indicted, he might serve jail time. But under oath, in the congressional record, are two very important people on opposite sides of nearly every issue who agree that he is a good guy. So Flynn's got that. And here's the last Comey selection. He added, because I have been very loyal to you, very loyal, we had that thing you know. I did not reply or ask him what he meant by that thing. I said the way to handle it was to have the White House counsel call the acting deputy attorney general. He said that was what he would do, and the call ended. That was the last time I spoke with President Trump. And tomorrow will be the next time that President Trump hears from Jim Comey. Have your safe words ready. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson has long been advising anyone who would listen, girls, you'd better watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about that thing, that thing, that thing. But those guys do not include just producer Chris Berube. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, tries to be a hard rock when he really, really is a gem. The Gist, follow us on Facebook, at facebook.com slash slate gist. It's the best place for Facebooking. The gist. Why can't Infrastructure Week become Infrastructure Fortnite? Oom um, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening. <laughs>